स्थापका धर्म से सर्वधर्मस्वरूपिणे अवतार वरिष्ठा रामकृष्णा ते नम वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणूरमर्दनम देवकी परमानंदम कृष्णं वंदे जगद्गुरुम so in the last class we were studying the 17th shloka of the second chapter of shrimad bhagavad gita so there we find that the reality has been depicted that what is real so we read the first line we were discussing on the first line of the shloka What's that? Avinashi tu tadviddhi yena sarvamidam tatam. So that there is a reality which is underlying the entire existence, which pervades the entire existence, and that is something which is avinashi, which is imperishable. It was, it is, it will be. it is always in the eternal now there is no transformation in it as we were indicating that all the thing which exists goes through six types of transformations but for the ultimate reality there is no transformation neither it was born nor it decays and as long as it is it is in the eternal present the concept of time comes only when there is transformation when there is no transformation the concept of time collapses you are in the eternal now in the eternal present and that's why in our scriptures the word purana is indicated to that absolute reality that he is the purana purusha and these words are so significant what is the meaning of the word purana pura api navaiva ever aging never old just the same pura api navaiva and that's the thing which pervades the entire existence all the changes which we see are just superimposed upon it just the way in our scripture the very oft quoted example is the way we are deluded in the twilight hours when we see a rope lying on the ground because of the dim light i may confuse it to be as a snake there is no real snake how long the snake exists the snake exists the moment that ignorance dawns in how long it stays the moment there again that illumination comes someone comes and focuses a torch on it and says this it's not a snake it's just a rope the, with the light of that knowledge illumination vanish i see the rope how long did the snake exist from the dawn of my ignorance till it was ended so it is not avinashi it has a certain beginning it has an end with ignorance the entire creation dawns with illumination it's over how long does the dream israel dream israel in the dream state we never think we are dreaming when we are dreaming the dream is real but the moment the dream is over i know oh it's all dream i am real the one who was dreaming he is real is the same person that who wakes up from the dream he knows it is i who was dreaming so the dreamer and the one who has woke up is the same person the experiencer is the same person but the thing experienced contradicts each other 
as the state of our existence changes. From this dream state, the moment I come back to the waking state, the experience has changed, but the experiencer is the same. And that's the thing which is all pervading. And that, that pervasiveness is not only in space, it's even in time. So the entire, the, the, the concept of time which we have in this world of ignorance, it pervades that entire time as well as the space. Just the way when I'm seeing the snake, the rope is pervading the entire snake. There is no snake as, as such at all. It is a rope which is pervading the snake. But at the same time, the rope has not become the snake. This rope is in no way affected by the snake. That rope can never be bitten by any snake. It is above all the so-called uh, cause and effect relationship. Just the way when I see the mirage in the desert, the huge reservoir, it's a mere projection. That reservoir doesn't have the power even to drench a single particle of sand of the desert. So it has no effect on it. It is beyond the cause and effect. But at the same time, can we say that the entire reservoir which I see is actually pervaded by the desert? If the desert is not there, the reservoir is not there. So in that sense, it is pervading, tatam, it pervades. And that the thing which pervades, that's Avinashi. With the end of ignorance, with the breaking of ignorance, the thing which I am seeing, that's no more there. But the one who was experiencing, he continues through all the phases of existence. And that's the one who is Avinashi. So the idea of imperishable nature of the reality has been stressed in the first line. The second line, again, we will find, will explain that imperishable nature from a different perspective. What's Vinasham Avyayasyasya Nakaschit Kartum Arhati? None can cause destruction of that which is immutable. These ideas, we are so familiar with these ideas, it seems what's there to understand is so easy. But there is so marvelous way of analysis of these ideas. And you will find the marvel of it, that nothing can in any way annihilate that idea of my existence. Because it has no parts. The thing which has no parts, you can no way mutilate it. The question of mutilation comes when there are parts. If a thing has no parts, how can you mutilate it? Just to give a common example, the example which you all will understand, that God forbid it doesn't happen when someone has to go through amputation, maybe because of accident or because of some illness, most probably a leg has been amputated. Does that person feel that it is only 70% or 80% of me who is remaining? That my leg is being amputated. Does it give him the feeling that only 80% of my original amnes is remaining? Is still the same I with the mutilation of your organ. The organs have part, the, the body has part. But the sense of amnes that is beyond all idea of parts. So that's why when Swami Vivekananda was in the West, he was speaking of that absolute reality beyond all cause and effect relationship. Then a wonderful thing we find in that description. What's that? When Swamiji was speaking of the absolute reality, which is non-dual, sometimes if this idea scares us, we find that in religion, as per the dualism is concerned, the duality of existence uh, is concerned, that it's very comfortable to uh, persist with the idea. What is the idea? That I am an individual. 
I want to remain as an individual through eternity. Yes, God is there. He's also an individual. I am also an individual. I want to remain as an individual and enjoy the bliss of my communion with the divine. The idea of merging my individuality in the absolute scares many. And that's why the votaries of dualist religions are always the majority. It will be there because it's very difficult to sometimes swallow the truth. The truth is truth. But it is very difficult to really get established in it. So that's the thing which happened when Swamiji was delivering the lecture. He was speaking of that non-dual reality, the only reality of which we are the mere projection. When ignorance vanishes, we all merge in that absolute existence. The idea of that Advaitic Vedanta when he was stressing, someone from the audience stood up and almost screamed what she screamed, Swamiji, Swamiji, what happens to our individuality? And Swami Vivekananda, with a wonderful smile, he was pacing here. In those days, there was no mic. So he used to pace up and down the entire this, the hall. Like a lion, he will be just walking up and down and delivering his lecture, totally transported into a different realm. So those who have witnessed it, they only have experienced that what a uh, wonderful transporting effect it had. So now Swamiji stopped. Whenever such questions used to arise, he will stop. And now as if the others are not existing, he used to, used to reply to that person. But Swamiji with a wonderful smile approached that woman. And what he told was something wonderful. Well, Madam, you are not individual yet. You become an individual when you are identified with that absolute reality. He's speaking something very wonderful. When I read it for the first time, I could make no sense of it, that what Swamiji is actually saying. And then much later, suddenly this idea dawned. This, you know, as we say, that the entire philosophy is encapsulated in our language. We get so habituated with the language, we forget that the but the philosophy is actually encapsulated in it. So what's the philosophy is encapsulated in the word individual? If you etymologically break the word individual, what it speaks of? Individual. That which cannot be divided is individual. Individual is something which can be divided. Visible is something which you can see. Invisible, it becomes negation. That which is not seen is invisible. Similarly, individual is something which can be divided. Individual, that which cannot be divided. I, as an limited psychophysical existence, I, as a body-mind complex, have a lot of components. In Vedanta, they speak of these five koshas, Annamaya kosha, Manamaya kosha, Vijnanamaya kosha. Anandamaya kosha. So this pranamaya kosha. So these I have the layers of existence. And even each of those layers have many, many divisions, many, many subdivisions. How many mental modules we have? It is not one mind. Our body has so many parts. So it is a conglomeration, sanghato, parartatva. It is a conglomeration of so many things. And there's a question of mutilation. When you uh, just conglomerate various components to form a unit, it can of course be disintegrated. But the absolute reality is something which is avyaya. This word now you will understand. Avyaya means that which has no parts. And the thing which has no parts can never be destroyed. It is beyond any uh, effect of mutilation. You cannot mutilate it. So when Swamiji told that you are not individuals yet, you become individual when you realize your identity with the absolute. So now you will understand that the philosophy is encapsulated in the word individual. We get so habituated with the word, we forget its meaning and we use it in a wrong sense. 
that we are all individuals as per our absolute reality is concerned, not as our psychophysical existence is concerned. But now we forget our real identity and this word individual becomes a misnomer. It gets identified with something which is not individual. And in the course of time, that's what happens with the language. We forget the philosophy behind it. When the language evolved, there was a philosophy behind it. We forget. And that's how the word starts having, uh, doesn't have any meaning for us. We have forgot its real purport. So here the idea is that, that the real individual is the absolute, which is avyaya beyond any idea of parts, conglomeration, and anything which cannot be uh, segregated into various parts is something which is vina, which is avyaya, and which cannot be amputated, which cannot be annihilated. No one can do that. So that's the thing which has been indicated here. So in no way, though it is stressing that as per the absolute reality is concerned, we are identical with the absolute reality. But at the same time, we, we will be again and again relating to the fact that Bhagavata, Bhagavad Gita do uh, uh, what you say believe, do uh, reinstate the fact that there is God. There is an eternal difference between God and this existence. But what it states here is that as the essence is concerned, we are all same. There's a difference in manifestation. As in the words of Sri Ramakrishna, Tini bibhu rupe sarvatra virajaman tabesh shoktir tartam Yes, as the essence, it is the same. There is no difference between God and me. But it is a difference in the manifestation. God is always beyond, is above the so-called ignorance, is beyond the maya. Nothing can delude him. From him, everything is being projected. And we, though are one in essence with him, are under the delusion. So he is the Maya Dhish, we are the Maya Adhin, we are Adhina, we are under the sway of Maya and he is something who is beyond Maya. The word Maya we use, again this word is so inter interesting. What does Maya means? Ma means negation in Sanskrit. Even in Bhagavad Gita we will find in many places the word Ma has been used as a negation. And Ya means Yatha Yatha. To see a thing as it is, is, be, is for that the word ya, that prefix ya is used. From that ya, the word yatha yatha has came. Just as it is. Ma is negation. So what I see is not actually what it seems to be. So for the entire projection, the entire creation is a projection. The way I see it, the way I think it is real, Actually, it is not so. And that's the concept of delusion. We are under the delusion. He is above the delusion. Though in essence, we are the same. In the words of Swami Vivekananda, very nicely when he was in the West, to describe this concept very nicely, he uh, just took an example, an allegory to explain this, that a clay mouse and a clay elephant, in essence, both are clay. But the clay mouse can never become a clay elephant. So for a clay mouse, a little amount of clay is sufficient to model it. For the clay elephant, that the, which I have created is a huge something. So in essence, both are clay. But that is something in which I found the power is manifesting more. Here it is less. Though in essence, both are same. There may be the same source of light passing through a small hole, it appears to be just a pinpoint of life, light, and passing through a huge apparatus, it may appear to be something, a huge uh, source of light. It's the same source of light. It's only the difference in the manifestation. So in essence, when Bhagavad Gita is speaking that it is the Lord who is pervading the entire universe, it is not denying the fact 
that there is a difference between the so-called jiva and the shwar. It is there. But in essence, as per the essence is concerned, as per the, our, the conscious principle, which is underlying the entire existence is concerned, it is the same and same alone. So that's the wonderful idea which we found in has been described in the 17th sloka. Now let us proceed to the 18th sloka. So in the 17th sloka, that what is real has been described. The 18th sloka will now say that what is unreal, whose nature is subject to change, what is that? So the sloka is Antavanta ime deha nityasya ukta sharirina. I am just breaking the sandhi to make it uh, more comprehensible. If I read the slope as it is, it's antavanta ime deha nityasyokta sharirina. Nityasya ukta becomes nityasyokta. So it is, the entire Bhagavad Gita is wonderful. Mostly it is anushtup chanda. There's a difference in the process of rhyming in our Vedic culture than the so-called rhyming in English literature. In Sanskrit, the rhyming is really difficult. It's not the just mere rhyming of the last words that makes poetry in Sanskrit. In Sanskrit, you will find like the Anushtup Chand. What's the rhyming? Exactly, there is total uh, four phrases in each of the slokas. There are exactly four phrases. And each phrase will have exactly eight syllables. Not one less, not one more. Exactly eight syllable in each phrase, and there are four phrases. Two lines, each line has two phrases, and each phrase has just eight syllables. And for that, these sandhis are very important. If you make it nityasya ukta, immediately the rhyming will break. So this wonderful rhyming is something which needs tremendous talent. It's very easy just to rhyme the last two words. That's why we find Swami Vivekananda was a very bold speaker. When he was invited in the Shakespeare club in the West, when he was in America, what he told may appear to be a bit crude, but it is a fact of, it is a very, it's a wonderful fact. What he told, the way you rhyme in English language is something like the barking of the dog, just the way the dog will be barking with the same syllable at the last uh, it ends. So it's, it's just like that. The rhyming is a science which you have to line, learn from the Sanskrit literature. It's a, wonderful. There are so many chandas. And, it, and there are, of course, many of the poems. Stotras are there where the last words also have been matched. But at the same time, the rhyming of the syllable is also there. So it needs a tremendous uh, talent, I have to say. And in Sanskrit, there are all the, most of this, uh, this uh, our literature is in that form. So here also, in San, you will find, and that's why the Shandhi is a very important thing. With that, you will find how they're beautifully maintaining that rhyming, not breaking the rhyming at all. Antavanta ime deha nitya syokta sharirina anashina prameyasya tasmat yudhyasya bharata. So, what is unreal? That which never lasts through eternity. So, only this, this material body, it has an end. It is perishable. And who is the one who is the real? The indwelling soul, Sharirina. The one who is residing in the Sharira is the Sharirina. Sharira is the body, the one who is residing there, the indwelling soul within the body, Sharirina, is the eternal, is nitya, is indestructible, anashina. Anashina means that which is indestructible. And the next word is very important, aprameya. You cannot measure it. This word aprameya is, uh, is, is the most significant word in this loka. We will come to it. And after saying that, suddenly Krishna says, therefore you fight. And you may suddenly feel that after the speaking of the Atman, which is imperishable, suddenly why is asking uh, Arjuna to fight? Is it a provocation to fight? Or does this, that's the smart 
Yudhyasya Bharata has some philosophical intonation. So let us try to understand what this sloka is speaking of. This Nitya Anashina, eternal and imperishable. The physical body can be injured, it can be destroyed by illness, death, jara, vyadhi, mrityu. These are the things which Gautam Buddha, when for the first time he was exposed to the external world, he understood that suffering is inevitable. Why? Because that's the three things he saw. Jara, vyadhi, mrityu. Illness, old age, death. None can avoid it. But the self, who is the indwelling spirit within us, it is ever, it is never changing. There is no death for it. This physical body goes through the process of birth, decay, death, disease, and all these changes are there. And that's the thing, very interesting thing, uh, uh, which our scripture again and again is reinstating. This is the thing which gives us strength, tremendous strength to be established in your real nature. How much strength it gives? I will just relate one incident. You know, the first martyr in the Indian freedom movement, many doesn't know that there were so many martyrs who just went for uh, having some shashastra means with they wanted to be uh, fighting against the British. It's almost impossible. It was the, the ruling power at that time. But still, uh, they had that tremendous spirit, indomitable spirit. And that way there were many martyrs who were all caught and at last were hanged to death. And the first martyr recorded in the Indian freedom movement is Khudiram Bosch. Now this Khudiram Bosch, very interesting. Uh, it's going a bit off the topic, but you will find it very interesting. You know that when he was uh, designated, that it was delegated, that he has to attack some the someone of a high British official. He was not getting sufficient strength. He was constantly postponing it. And now, every day they had the habit of reading two things, Bhagavad Gita. And in those days, Swami Vivekananda was highly suspected by the British government. In his literature, there is no mention of fight against the British. But that, that it has a tremendous power to establish in your that in, indomitable nature, your that the nature which is never decaying like Bhagavad Gita. So all these freedom fighters found tremendous strength from it. So these two things were with them. So this Swami Vivekananda's literature and Bhagavad Gita. Whenever the British government used to seize, wherever they, they used to go to get the news that there, that there are some revolutionaries who are hiding. And if they get the news, they spied and they were caught and these two things inevitably they was found. And Khudiram Bosch, one day, he used to read this Bhagavad Gita and Swamiji's literature every day. One of his friends used to come and the together used to read. Prafulla Chaki one day came and he found Khudiram just uh, is sitting. Uh, his uh, books are not there in the table where he used to be there. He used to, he used to keep the books. They used to come and they used to read. The books are not there. He told, what happened? Uh, we won't have reading today. And Khudiram simply told, very interesting thing, the purpose of reading is over. It's done. There's a one uh, poem of Swami Vivekananda. It inspired so many. It's Shadesh Mantra. In that Shadesh Mantra, there are so many lines that each of the line has inspired so many. One of the line is, don't forget that for your, from your birth, you have been sacrificed in the altar of your motherland. That ma is there. And now Khudiram was born. I have I was in that place. He was born in his uh, the in the place in the uh, of his aunt. And that aunt's house is just opposite to one temple that's actually uh, 
consecrated for the mother, for the mother goddess, Mother Kali. And that line suddenly struck him. Yes, I was born just almost in the feet of the mother. Just opposite, just on the opposite land. There is the Shiddheshwari Kali Mandir. And I was born there. As if I, my life is for the sacrifice in the altar of my mother. Maybe she is now finding expression as the motherland. She needs for her, uh, for the welfare of all, there's a need for some sacrifice. And reading that line, he was so inspired. He told that the purpose for which I was reading is done. Now I'm convinced what I have to do. And the thing which he did for that, he was caught. And it was decided that he will be hanged. He was just a teenager, not even teenager. He was uh, 16 or 17. Means not even an adult. He was just a teenager. And it was decided that he will be hanged. He was in jail for about a month. And the, it's, it's a uh, practice. What's the practice? That the day you will be hanged, you uh, before hanging, they weigh you. What's your weight? They will be weighing you almost every day when you are in jail. And as you know, that the one who has been condemned to that, uh, for death, invariably, however good food, nourishing food you may give, he is going to become a weakling because he knows that after a few days, I'm going to die. And to the astonishment of the British government, they found his weight has increased. When the devil, he was enjoying good health. It speaks of the state of mind, no tension, no worries. He was every day reading the Bhagavad Gita. This gives the strength that nothing can destroy you. What I have done is for the ideal. And after all, it's just a passing phase. This body will die. I exist and nothing can kill me. Even that boy of 16 gets the terrible strength. So that's these are the strength which we get from the scriptures. These are the words we read again and again. And sometimes we become so habituated with it. We forget the spirit of it. There are so many lines. You know that another line uh, in that uh, uh, same Swadesh mantra. Many doesn't know that Mahatma Gandhi was so inspired. You have, have you seen the old photos of Mahatma Gandhi? Very interesting. When he came from South Africa, he joined the Congress. He used to be totally suited and suited, tied like a British uh, barrister because he was a barrister. And that was his dress. The dress which we see uh, nowadays with Mahatma Gandhi, that half clad, his dhotis on, on, uh, above his knees. That was not his dress. That letter, he adopted that dress and never has forsaken that dress. Even when he had to go to the, uh, this for the round table conference uh, uh, in England, with the, the queen. There also he was wearing the same dress, the dhoti, half-clad dhoti. You know from where he got the inspiration? Again, that same poem of Swami Vivekananda, Swadesh Mantra, in that another line is there, that tumi koti matro vastrabrita hoya, shadar pe dakiya balo, bharat bashi amar bhai, bharat bashi amar pran. Bharatir Devdevi Amar Ishwar, Bharatir Shamaj Amar Shishu Shajja, Amar Jaubane Rupavan, Amar Bardhukkir Baranushi, Bharatir Mrittika Amar Shargo, Bharatir Kollan Amar Kollan. Reading these lines, what does this mean? I won't translate the entire thing. The line which inspired Mahatma Gandhi, just, just wearing a loin cloth, be proud enough to declare yourself that you are an Indian. Don't think that you are something, a, just a, like a warming, a crawling creature that you have no power, have the strength, wearing the lion cloth. And that's the day that wearing the lion cloth, be proud to declare yourself in India. Mahatma Gandhi, that day, when he went to Belurmat to see Mahatma, uh, Vivekananda. If you read Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography, he never met Swami Vivekananda. So Vivekananda was very sick. He was in Belurmat, he was very sick. So no one was allowed to meet him. So he was dejected. Naturally, the young Mahatma Gandhi was dejected. And when he was returning back from Belumat, he purchased the Vivekananda literature. And there he wrote, read those lines that inspired him so much. That day, this, is, this speaks of the tremendous conviction 
Now it is everyone that has become the fad of the day. Every personality is slaughtered. We forget that they represented such a huge ideal. We, we are not even a hear of it. It has now become the fad of the day just to uh, uh, just be an iconoclast, just simply drag and pull and uh, slaughter any of the personalities. What tremendous ideal they had, what tremendous this uh, purpose, uh, this conviction and the sincerity of purpose they had that they decided I won't wear this dress anymore. This is my going to be the attire till the last day. That was his dress. Just see the inspiration. And the same, uh, the it is how these ideas, this Apramaya, the Anashina, Apramaya, how it inspires. Many, many of the characters, uh, the name I'm saying, are not that as a good or bad man, but how they were inspired. Inspiration. You have heard, uh, most of you have heard the name of Anna Hazare a few decades back. It was uh, the whole everyday news uh, uh, was there in his name. He was, a, he's really a man of integrity. There may be various views of the way he was trying to bring measures. Let us forget about that. You know, he was working as a, uh, in the short term commission of the army. He had only class eight pass degree uh, qualification, no education at all, didn't pass even high school. So when as a short term army, his work was over. So as a, as a just a, in a teen, uh, what is in his twenties, he was retired and he was finding no job. He went to a depression. He thought, what's the use of this life? He was standing in one of the railway station. It's most probably the Pune railway station. While he was standing there, he decided to commit suicide. That a true train, that some of the trains won't stop at some of the stations. They're the true trains. So a true train was supposed to pass by the Pune station and he decided to jump and commit suicide. And in India, sometimes you just see even this, the delay of the train can bring out the greatness out of you. So it was announced that the train is delayed by one hour. And now you can just think the one who is waiting to commit suicide and he's find that the time has to be delayed. That's the through train which is going to pass on which he has to jump is delayed by one hour. So he was very restless. So what to do? He thought, let me uh, divert my at attention by doing something like reading books. He saw a bookstall and he saw a very uh, small book, booklet. It was all the, uh, uh, what you say, the some selected passages of Swami Vivekananda, a small booklet. And just see the destiny he opened the book, the first line which came to his notice was that so many lives you have just given away in West. That's what we do. We think that this career, everything, that's all going to give us satisfaction. And we come to that state and then start suffering from that meaninglessness. And then the old age comes, we die. It is going on life after life, such a vestige. So Swamiji is saying, how many lives you have vested? Sometimes you think, that this life which I am asking you to come from, that he was in those days encouraging the young man to come and join the Ramakrishna order and to serve the nation in a, some different way. So for that, that line is that how many lives you have wasted? Why not give just one life to me? What's, what's, how it is going to harm? After all, you have wasted so many lives. If you think this is going to be a waste, why not experiment? You're not going to lose anything. Just see, just experiment, just give a life to me. Just thinking that it is also going to be best. And then you will see the miracle out of it. So that's the line. That how many lives you have wasted? Why don't you give just a one life to me? And that line struck him so much. He thought, yes, that's the truth. So many lives most probably have wasted. And now I'm going to waste this life also. That he was waiting for suicide. Let me just try to give this life for an ideal. He returns. And then you find this transformed Anazare. So these words, this Anashina, the lives after lives, as by identifying with the physical body, we are resting. Why not assert your real nature and try to do something by identified in it? You will find the life has transformed. It will be transforming to us as well to the others. So these, that's why these slokas are like mantras. The word mantra means 
Mananath Trayate Iti Mantra. Just by cogitating upon those words, you find it helps you to, uh, what you say, the transcend all the limitations. Trayate. It liberates you. Mananath, just by cogitating upon it. So these slokas are that's why considered as mantras. Just you go on cogitating upon it and you will find it is liberating. It liberates you from all the limitations of fears, of narrowness. So these words, anashina, aprameya, nitya, these words itself becomes mantra. So the word aprameya, what actually it means? That which cannot be comprehended by the senses and the mind. When, I, when we say that you are that absolute reality, which is the consciousness and consciousness alone, which is the eternal witness. Now immediately what happens that for us, whenever we speak of any reality, we will ask, can you show me? Can you show me? That's the first question. So here also the question comes, just show me. How can I measure it? Anything which uh, the re- that present in, in my present state of existence, any reality can be measured. I am having this thing, this table in front of me. It has a length, it has a breadth, it has a height. It has some material by which it is made. Everything can be measured. Prameya, prama means measurement. Aprameya, that is immeasurable, that you cannot measure. Now you may say that, uh, then how can I know of its existence? Now it is certain thing which cannot be measured, but you know that it is. In Sanskrit, it is called Swata Siddha. In the example, simple example of Ramakrishna, I will just give. There are so many things. It cannot be measured, but can you deny its existence? The mother's love. Can you measure the mother's love? That a girl was married after one year when she has a child, she came with the child back to her village and all her companions, all the girls, all the girls' companions, those other girls who were yet to be married, they came and they were asking her that how she feels to have a child. And she was saying it's an immense joy. How much joy? And she found it cannot be explained. What only the answer she gave, you become the mother, then you will understand. You become the mother, then so this is Swata Siddha. It is something which is experienceable, but which cannot be expressed. You cannot explain it. It is inexplicable, but that doesn't mean it is not experienced. So it is Swata Siddha. I can doubt everything. Nowadays, because the artificial intelligence has become so sophisticated that they have already started saying, yeah, this is yet still a far cry. They have already, there are so many movies that the artificial intelligence is almost impossible to be separated from a real organic creature. Some artificial intelligence must be sitting here, listening to the talk, and he also or she also asks questions. I reply, just thinking, he is just like the one organic creature next. I cannot separate them. Someone comes and opens the brain and you see all the circuits and then you know, oh, this is artificial intelligence. So what I'm saying here that yes, with the science, we can go to that stage where it is almost impossible to know which is real existence and which is a robot. So the external world can be doubted, but can you doubt your existence? I know I am. That is never, that is the beyond all doubt. That's why even in English they say, the doubter of the self is the self. The one who says, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in self. The one who is saying that the doubter, he is the self. It is a Swata Siddha. It is always experienceable. I can never deny my existence. I can never think of my death. If you read the life of Raman Maharshi, from there you will find that his first experience of that Swata Siddha Atman came from a wonderful experience that we can never think of our death. You'll say, how come? I can't think of our death. Now, if I ask you that, just think of your death, how, just imagine you have died. What will you imagine? That you are lying, your body is lying, that your near and dear ones are surrounding you. They are most probably crying, wailing, 
But who is seeing all those things? Who is visualizing all those things? You. I can never think of my death. Can you think of your death? At the most, you will be thinking of your body lying there. Others are repenting, crying. But who is seeing all those things? You. And that's what happened with Raman Maharshi. And then he came to that realization that suddenly that realization dawned in. That I can never think of my annihilation. That the one who is the experience is always is the experiencer. It cannot be measured. It is beyond all measurement. But it is Swata Siddha. In the words of Ramakrishna, Kamunghi na Jamunghi. Can you explain the test of clarified butter? But does it have a test? I have tested it. I know it has a test. I cannot explain. Similar is with ourselves. It is Swata Siddha. But Aprameya, to give a more clear explanation, anything which is fundamental becomes beyond measurement. It, goes, it is all beyond measurement. All the fundamental things, qualities. With the help of that, I can explain that. But I cannot explain that fundamental quality. The word fundamental means that. That which cannot be explained by means of anything else. But with the help of that, I can explain other things. That's the fundamental. To give an example, the existence of gravitation. How do you know? Can you measure gravitation? Well, yes, there's the equation that, uh, that uh, what you say that um, um, mass into gravitation, uh, m into g's, it gives the force by which an object is falling. I understand that. But can you really measure gravity? No. What I'm doing, that there's some object is falling with respect to that, I can become aware of gravitation. But do you know gravitation by itself? No. Just it's, I am aware of gravitation only with respect of a falling object. But otherwise, I am not aware of gravitation. Are you aware of magnetism by itself? No. The same thing happens there, that only when the iron filings are being oriented in certain way or is attracted by a so-called apparently looking iron bar. I say, oh, no, it's not an ordinary iron bar. It's a magnet. But can you see the magnetism as it is? No. So these are the fundamental things. To explain that I need those iron filings, I need a falling object, and then only I can explain. Similarly, the Atman is Swata Siddha. By its expression in the existence, in the entire, entire, in the entire existence, as the animate and inanimate objects. Through that, I can understand that something is there behind, but I cannot measure it. I cannot explain it. But that doesn't mean that I can, I can in no way be aware of it. It is experienceable, but not describable. You cannot describe it. It is Swayam Siddha. Even in Vedanta, we find the absolute reality in no way has been described. You may say, why? Even in the Vedas, they say it is Sat Chit Ananda Swarupa. And we do a big mistake when we say that Sat Chit Ananda are the positive attributes of that absolute reality. It's actually not. The word Sat Chit Ananda actually is a negation of limitations. It's in no way explains the absolute reality. It cannot be explained. Then you say, how come Sat Chit Ananda is a negation? These are all positive words. Sat means reality, Chit means consciousness, Ananda means bliss. And I say, these are the attributes of that absolute reality. It's a wrong way of understanding. It's not the attributes of absolute reality. You will understand if that how they're negation. When I say Sat, it's a negation of the idea of my real, this limited psychophysical existence. What I think of myself, when I have to define myself that yes, I was, my date of birth is such and such. And I know at certain point I'm going to die. And my I'm going through this transformation, six types of transformation. Jayate, asti, vardhate, viparinamate, apakshyate, nasti. And that's my existence. So sat is a negation of that. No. That you, you're thinking yourself to be limited within this time span and that limited with the process of transformation. No. You are Sat. In Sanskrit, what Sat means? That which is Trikal Avadita, whose existence cannot be interrupted by any phase of time, past, 
present, future. It was, it is, it will be through eternity. So when I say Sat, it is a negation of the idea that I'm a limited being. I was born at a certain point of time. I'm going to die at a certain point of time and I'm going through the transformation. It's a limited. And now when I say, okay, I understand that there cannot be as such any annihilation. The real me cannot be annihilated. So he will say, yes, yes, that's, that's what science also says. As energy and matter, we exist in some form or other. And this consciousness is an epiphenomenon. Somehow by the interaction of matter and energy, the consciousness came into existence. I die, it again goes back as energy and matter as something inanimate. That is the reality. The consciousness is an epiphenomenon. Phenomenon is the reality. From that it appears for the time being as reality, but it is not. So here again, the, again the next negation is Chit. The scripture here asserts that no, that the thing which is the absolute reality, which uh, is never annihilated, is the consciousness. Very interesting, the modern science is echoing that fact. In the double slit experiment, to those who are, I will, won't go to the details, just the thing I will say, it, that whether the elect, that the electron is a matter or it's just an energy that lasts, first of all, uh, you know that everything is space, in a, in, even that in a concrete structure like this table when, uh, in front of which I'm sitting, it appears to be solid. But is it solid? It's a limitation of our senses which cannot really measure what it is. It is not solid. Even with the modern, with the ordinary science, you will understand that what's the structure of each atom by which this table is made? There is a nucleus within which there are protons and neutrons and the electrons are moving around it. At what distance it is moving around? Very interesting. That it's the most of the place is space. If I can enlarge this atom into suppose a, a football ground, the football, the football kept in the center of the ground will be the nucleus. And the electrons are something which are running around the stadium. Most of the place is space. Then if this is the atom, which everything is space, why I feel this solid? It's because of the tremendous speed of the electrons, which is uh, going around uh, these neutrons, which uh, makes me feel this limitation of the senses that everything is solid. To give an example, we won't go to the very details that when the fan is now not revolving, I see the three or four blades. I can see it. I switch on, the fan starts revolving. What I see? My, it's a limitation of my senses. I see, I cannot see the blades anymore. I see a disc, isn't it? That's how we are pursuing the universe. There's a tremendous motion. Most of the place is space. It is the limitation of the senses which makes it look as a solid concrete structure. Otherwise it is the Nataraja's dance going on. And that's where, that's the significance of Nataraja. He's dancing violently with a tremendous force. But you look at his face, it is calm. In his hand, there is Vara and Bhaya Mudra. But in spite of this tremendous motion, somehow apparently the calmness is there. That is the Maya. That is not the reality. But that's how Shiva sustains the creation. That in that, in that tremendous violent Tandava dance, the face is calm. The hand is having Varabhaya. That's why we build the house thinking it's a, such a solid concrete structure. We always forget anytime. This few days back in Melbourne, no one thought that there can be an earthquake. The tectonic movements are going on. The strong structure which is not moving is constantly moving. That's the Varabhaya Mudra of Shiva. In this tremendous dance, he gives an apparent sensation of calmness and we are satisfied. We take his to be eternal and in this flow, that's the thing where this constant change we are not at all aware of. So here in our scriptures is the behind this that what that double slit experiment says, very interesting that electron, now they thought this electron is something matter. To find out its nature, this famous double slit experiment is there. In that, I won't go to the details of that experiment, very interesting. At last, what the conclusion comes, it's almost like Vedanta, that whether it is a, a particle or it is a wave, whether it is a matter or it is energy, 
At last they found a very interesting thing. It cannot be decided unless there is an observer. The moment when you are observing, suddenly the wave becomes matter. And the language of science, the what you say, the probability collapses into reality. <laughs> What's the language? Wonderful language, the science language. The probability collapses into reality when someone is observing. Now you say, what is fundamental? You need an observer to make out, to collapse the reality from the probability. So that chit, that's the thing the scripture was asserting. The chit, consciousness is the fundamental. It's not the epiphenomenon. It is the thing which I see is the epiphenomenon. So that's the chit. The thing, now when, when I say sat is the thing which cannot be destroyed and you immediately come to the conclusion, okay. Then as matter, as energy, I am indestructible. But this consciousness is just an epiphenomenon. We again go back. Somehow we came to life uh, from the, accidentally from matter. Again, we go back to matter. So here the scripture asserts, you no, know, you're the chit, the conscious principle, not the matter. The matter is epiphenomenon. And now if I get somehow convinced with the idea, and then again, I get depressed. If I am the eternal conscious principle, am I always on the sway of the changes of the world. For a little moment, I am happy. The next moment, again, I am in depression. Just like in a wave, I am just swayed now at the top of ecstasy, stay there for a small moment. I go back to depression and through eternity, this is going on. And again, another negation. No, you transcend the so-called the joys and sorrows of life. You are the Ananda Swarupa. No change can touch you. Now see the Satchit Ananda. Does it speak of the attributes? It's actually negation of the limitation. You can never measure the absolute. It is immeasurable. I say by Satchit Ananda, I can measure it. No. It is just the negation of my limited existence. The moment I say Satchit Ananda, it's not the attributes. It's the negation of my limited existence. But does it mean that I am not aware of it? No. It is Swata Siddha. There is no need to prove your own existence. You can doubt the existence of the entire world, yet you cannot doubt your own existence. It is Swata Siddha. So that's what you'll find the word Aprameya is so important. Aprameya. That when you say, you show me, I cannot show it to you, but that doesn't mean you can deny. Can you see light? Even light cannot be seen unless it falls in some object. You may say, why in the daytime I see the sky lighted? We forget the atmosphere is full of particles. The gas, light is falling on that and dispersing and giving me a sense that light is pervading. If you go to the space, you can see the sun will be, you will be just looking at the sun as if it is coming, that sun is being seen through a hole, uh, a iron, what is the shell is there. The entire so-called space is black. Only the sun as a lighted body is seen. Just in the night, the way you see the dim light in your bedroom, this, that light is the room is dark, only the light is seen. In space, when you can go out of the atmosphere, that's how the sky is visible. The way I see the sky at night, even in the broad daylight, the moment you move out of the space, that's what you see in the sky. Why we see the light? Because it is the light is dispersing of the gas particles, the atmosphere, to give a feeling that light is pervading. Light cannot be seen unless it falls on something. So that way, light can, that existence of light can be known only when it lights something else. By itself, it is not visible. Gravitation can be known when I see a falling object. By itself, it cannot be known. Similarly, here, the self, its expression through this phenomenal existence, through its expression through this phenomenal existence, I know its existence. By itself, it cannot be known. So it is Swata Siddha. It is something which is experienceable, but you cannot measure it. And that's the idea. That's why I told this Aprameya word is something very significant in this sloka. That Anashina, that indestructible nature that we were describing even in the previous sloka. is here the word Aprameya. Then now after suddenly saying this, he's saying, now therefore you fight. Tasmat Yudhya Sevharat. And suddenly you may find that it is in no way relevant to the discussion which was going on. Why he is being asked to fight? Is it a provocation? Or is that some other spiritual intonation? Well, we will take this part, this Tasmat Yudhya Sevharata, why that suddenly the 
Lord, the God Bhagavan Krishna is uh, suddenly now coming back to that his old instruction that don't uh, become so unmanly. Get up. Tasmat Uttishta Yashala Bhashya. These words will come in the Bhagavad Gita in the later chapter. Get up. Fight. Nimitta Matra Bhavasabhya Saching. Be an instrument in the divine plan. So all those things have some implications in this word, Tasmat Yudhyasya Bharata. So what actually it means? First, we will have a short discussion before we proceed to the next sloka in the next class. In the next class. With this, we stop our discussion today. Thank you all. Namaskars.